0: Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to talk about racial diversity data disclosed by companies or the lack thereof. And then Morgan Ellis joins us for a hot take on a at-risk construction sector as our society starts to reopen even as COVID-19 continues to spread. Thanks as always for joining us stay tuned During these past weeks I find myself and not for the first time having difficulty hearing companies talk about diversity and inclusion because I've always wondered what companies would do if it wasn't obviously profitable to be inclusive I take Nike for example on the one hand, I'm very glad Colin Kaepernick, the American football player who took a knee during the National Anthem in protests of police brutality, was able to get a check as the NFL effectively banned him for taking that stand. But on the other hand, it wasn't difficult for Nike to do that. It made millions with his image. And then after they did that, they didn't really change much internally. And how do I know that? How do I know that Nike didn't really change their culture? Well, unlike many companies, Nike releases a lot of data on diversity. We know, for example, that 44% of its workforce identifies as white, 22% as black, 19% as Latino or Hispanic, and 9% as Asian as of year-end 2019. We also know that 76% of its management and upper management identifies white, with only about 6% as black, 4% as Hispanic or Latino, and around 9% as Asian. This is a rare breakdown for public companies. Many, such as the company I work for, do not report on their employee diversity. When we tried to do research on racial diversity last year, we reviewed and collected the voluntary racial demographic disclosures of the largest 1,100 companies of the MSCI ACQUI index. Of these, 373 were U.S. companies, and 28% of those 373 actually disclosed on their racial demographics to some extent. That gave us a final sample of 103 companies. That's really low. 103 is not a large sample size. And there's a significant disclosure bias with this data. Those companies that did disclose care about the issue. And disclosure biases are indeed informative, but there's still an issue with data availability, and that's exactly what I wanted to discuss today. Why are companies' disclosures on racial demographics so low? How can they get better? And what the end goal is with these disclosures. And to do that, I have with me Megan Eastman, who used to run our Women on Boards research and Bentley Kaplan, a co-host who was born in South Africa, which has some of the best racial diversity data out there and just as a disclaimer today we're going to talk about the data not the morality of the issue because the morality of the issue is personal and subjective there are better people out there than me a white man who always has smiled that warmly wherever i go to talk about the fact that the current justice system is systemically flawed and racism both overt and covert is rampant in all parts of our society instead i want to talk about data something that we at MSCI Issue Research can easily wrap our heads around and discuss. So Megan, can you just paint a broad picture for me as to what sort of data is out there for racial demographics in companies and what that data looks like?
1: Okay, so the short answer is there's not a ton out there. There are basically two types of data. When we talk about workforce racial diversity or ethnic diversity, there's the quantitative data, you know, who is in your workforce, and how do you count them, uh, and do you count them, and how do you report them? And then there's qualitative data, which is more about companies' policies and practices, what they say they do. So there is not a lot of the quantitative stuff out there. Um, The qualitative data, there is more of, but it's still pretty general. So this includes things like, does a company do diversity-related training for the workforce? Is there an executive in charge of diversity and inclusion? Does the company support employee resource groups for minority groups? Um, What kinds of recruitment efforts does the company have to build a more diverse candidate pipeline? Does it partner with educational institutions to build that pipeline, that kind of thing? So the qualitative data. And we do look at some of each of those types of data in our model when we're looking at human capital. But I can tell you that that first category, um, the the quantitative stuff is really pretty sparse and hard to compare, even though you would expect quantitative data to be easier to compare. And then if we look at the qualitative stuff, um, if you look at programs to increase diversity, if you look at the roughly 600 largest publicly traded U.S. companies on, in that category, we didn't find any disclosed information for about a third of those companies. So you know, roughly 200, and then for another third, they really only had general statements of intent. You know, yes, we want to increase diversity among our work- workforce. Only about 12% of them set quantitative targets to increase diversity, which is a real best practice. Uh, but to be clear here, that's not even just about racial diversity, that's about any kind of diversity, it, it could be gender or something else. So the number of companies that are setting quantitative targets, whether that's in their workforce or their candidates they're recruiting or whatever, um, it, the ones doing that for racial diversity is even smaller.
0: So why don't companies release this data? I mean, people are obviously for it. There's a call for everyone to release their data as soon as possible. Why, why don't companies just say, okay, yeah, we'll do it, of course. Um, I mean, I know they're trying to avoid criticism in some areas, but they can't avoid it forever, especially now. Big companies are going to be pressured into doing this sooner or later. So why not just preempt it? Why not do it?
1: There are a number of different challenges with this. Challenges to companies to you know, collect and report the data and then challenges to anybody in the community or the investment community who wants to use the data. So maybe the first thing to say is just that, if we're talking about statistics, workforce makeup, that ethnic and racial diversity data is not like other kinds of ESG data. This is about how people identify themselves, which they may or may not choose to do in a way that a company can report. So collecting it is challenging, and then reporting it is challenging. Now, that said, in the United States, at least, companies are required to report to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, every year using the U.S. Census Bureau categories. So African-American, Asian-American, there are some problems with those categories. They're maybe not totally up to date, but, you know, it's something. Um, But still, a lot of companies don't make that report public. But the the challenges with this data, especially for larger companies, also go beyond that because, you know, I've given U.S. examples so far, um, but we'll get Bentley on to talk in a minute because who counts as a racial minority and, and what sorts of groups you ought to keep track of and who has been underprivileged or oppressed varies from country to country. We all have our own unique histories and social dynamics. And so trying to do that across the board in an international, global uh, environment definitely does introduce additional complications. You can't just report single figures a- across your global workforce.
2: Um,
1: it, speaking of the the global situation, you know, in fact, there are countries where this type of re- recording uh, reporting is actually illegal, be- like France, uh, because of their own history with the Holocaust and Nazism and so forth. So, you know, that's another kind of challenge. Um, and then. Even if a company does report workforce makeup, and there are, like I said, you know, maybe a hundred or so large companies in the U.S. that do this, um, that still might not be enough to tell you how it compares to the workforce that could be available to the company. Like, how does that compare to the makeup of the the social makeup of the locations where the company operates, and what? It, how does their workforce look look at different levels? You know, who are they bringing in for what kinds of jobs, and who's advancing up? Through um, through the ranks, I I don't want to suggest that collecting and reporting quantitative data is a bad idea, because it's hard to measure things. You know, I mentioned uh, it's hard to measure progress if you don't know where you've started from. So I mentioned you know targets for inclusion, as one of the best practices that we see, especially among American companies, and uh, you know it's hard to set a target or measure your progress toward it if you don't know where you've started from. But I do think that it is important to recognize that it it's not simple and there are just a lot of nuances and complications. And so you have to look at the data with a critical eye. And when you ask for data, you have to make that request with an understanding of its limitations.
0: And it's just, it's sort of the same with MSCI. I know about 12% of our workforce is domestic, being in the U.S. and a majority is uh, international. So there's a difference there, and we got to figure out how we can report that because it's necessary. But it depends on the region. And, Bentley, this is where I kind of want you to come in because South Africa obviously has a storied history with issues with uh, racial violence and discrimination and the apartheid and all that. So can you kind of paint me the picture of what happens in South Africa in terms of racial data disclosure?
2: Yeah, so maybe from a South African perspective, um, the, the best way to tackle this is to is to talk about, I think, you know, one of South Africa's uh, most famous exports at the moment, uh, Trevor Noah, um, and he had a debate um, at some point around the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup, um, about you know how to define your identity. Um, and he had quite a public debate with the French ambassador, both coming from pretty good places, um, you know. But for the French ambassador, it doesn't matter which country you came from. Once you were in France, you were French. And Trevor Noah was stressing. You know the importance of your your heritage and where you're from, and I think that still is very much the case in South Africa. Um, your you know your ethnic identity is still a very big part of who you are. Um, and I think because of the, you know the 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 legacy we've been through through apartheid, um, and you know post democracy, South Africa has grown quite a thick skin about different racial identities, and it's you know often, uh, the you know the core part of a stand up comedian, uh, Trevor Noah included, um, and and it's also been you know sort of ingrained in a lot of the the large businesses in the country uh, in terms of the broad based black economic empowerment model which is trying to address some of the systemic inequality around apartheid um and you know they've they've got basic categories for how you would define someone's uh, ethnicity um and you know they it's not too granular it is self-disclosed. So employees have to provide the data themselves. Um, but essentially what the government's trying to to tell the difference between is is white or non-white. Um, and then they can use that to determine how successful a company is in redressing in issues around management and ownership and skills development. Um, and that's, you know, that's one thing that the government's doing at the moment. But then, you know, how you take that data and then scale it up into a model is obviously quite challenging. And that. That argument between Trevor Noah and the, and the French ambassador was a good example of of how those different views might happen from country to country. So when you have these you know global corporations with you know hundreds of thousands of employees, it's difficult to know you know what kind of metrics would be most useful. Which is not to say companies shouldn't be collecting them. And then of course you know once you've got that that data um you know it becomes around the ultimate questions of of how you use it and what you use it for um you know the south african model about redistributing wealth you know from the white minority to the the black majority in the country hasn't really happened you know through this this diversity reporting and that's because there are a lot of you know systemic issues around you know education and healthcare and housing so you can't really look for you know necessarily data disclosure from corporates to be the lever to to really drive that change although it is it's an important part of um of how that would happen
0: okay so now that we've kind of explored the difficulties of getting this data using this data differences in this data can you tell me what we're doing to Address this. We collect difficult data all the time, and it's not disclosed by companies always. Uh, Megan, can I start with you?
1: So the reported data alone isn't enough to tell you where a company stands compared to its peers, and certainly the data that's reported today is not enough. But even, and more reported data would help, but it still wouldn't be enough. Like you still need to look elsewhere. So there there are some other sources that can help fill in some of these gaps, uh, even though they all have limitations. So there are there are other organizations like Fortune magazine publishes an annual list about best workplaces for African-Americans and other groups. So where, you know, they've got their own methodology for trying to identify those. You can look at how companies allocate their charitable and political contributions and to whom. You can look at employee opinion boards like Glassdoor and see what issues come to the fore. You can look at what's in the media. You can look at NGOs. Um, so coming back to those large-cap U.S. companies, as I was talking about earlier and who reports what, you know, we track their involvement in controversies, allegations of discrimination or other workforce diversity problems. And as, of those 600 or so, I just checked yesterday, around 20% had been involved in some kind of controversy around workforce diversity or discrimination. It wasn't all about race or ethnicity, um, but that that represented maybe about a quarter of them. So there's some more information there. We're exploring techniques in natural language processing to identify patterns and how companies communicate and talk about issues and the frequency of how of themes that appear and that sort of thing. That's really nascent, but you know, there might be, given the limitations of just collecting and reporting data from companies, there are there's promise for other ways to get at this question in the future, in addition, that might help fill in the mosaic and, and draw a more complete picture.
0: What do you think, Bentley? Same thoughts? Can Can you spell this out for me?
2: Um so I've so I've got a, a couple of things which struck me as 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 Megan as you were talking and, and Mike your question your line of questioning. I mean, there's a lot of evidence about diversity being good for a company, you know, not from a moral perspective, but just from making them more competitive and innovative. So I think you know there's there's definitely there's arguments for why companies should be looking at disclosing better data. But I think you know where where that really accelerates is when the the pressure comes from you know investors or regulators to disclose better data and to show, you know, progress towards some end. Um, And if you look at, you know, how climate change reporting has changed over the last 10 years, you you get an idea of what that kind of pressure could, you know, could achieve. Um, And, you know, one one, one thing which has happened in South Africa as, as part of the the broad based black economic empowerment program, which is basically about um, you know, wealth re- redistribution to try and correct you know what's you know, at least some of what 's happened through apartheid, um, is that there was this incentive structure set up to try and drive um, empowerment of previously disadvantaged people and you know there 's a number of pillars that you can in- improve it in-, in terms of you know the management of a company, the ownership of a company, and skills development is it 's quite a uh, quite a detailed structure. Um, And that has been underway for a while and, you know, it has its critics, there's been some pros and some cons. Um, But, you know, it hasn't really addressed inequality generally. So I think... But what is helpful to, for investors and for companies maybe is to think, you know, beyond beyond these metrics, what is the end result you want to be working towards and how can you look at disclosure or programs to address those ultimate goals as well? Because there's a lot of, you know, underlying structural things in South Africa that haven't really changed, even though companies have become more black owned or more black run, you know, the education system, the healthcare system, the transport system, housing is all very much, you know, still uh, an artifact, an artifact of, of apartheid. So I think that that kind of systemic challenge is also going to be you know part of the question um and i think that's you know that's one thing to to understand there's limitations to what corporate disclosures and diversity programs will achieve in terms of big social change so it's it's just knowing you know where those boundaries are
0: And now I have Morgan Ellis with me because economies are starting to open up, even though COVID-19 is still a global pandemic. And construction companies are some of the first companies to restart operations. But construction companies use a lot of contractors. And contractors don't necessarily get the same sort of health and safety benefits that company employees do. And construction work is already pretty dangerous without COVID-19, they work in close quarters, they work with heavy machinery, a lot can go wrong. So what Morgan did was look at construction companies' current health and safety programs to see how they, how inclusive they are to contractors. So Morgan, what did you find?
3: So I looked at the contractor policies for these um, construction companies, because as you mentioned, um, construction sites are very close quarters. There is a lot more regulation and requirements coming out of the COVID-19 lockdown periods. So I saw companies that have contractors included in their health and safety policies as being indicative of companies that are more able to deal with these extra requirements and keep their employees and contractors safe on the construction sites to ensure that the projects continue um, and don't get shut down inadvertently through um, the virus being contracted on site and spreading through site. So I was looking at companies that have contractors, contractor oversight included in their health and safety policies, um, and especially included in their health and safety performance metrics, like lost time, injury frequencies or fatalities, um, and that was showing how companies um, have a more holistic view of safety on their construction sites and are more proactive in taking care of everyone that enters their sites and not just only looking or being concerned with their direct employees.
0: Yeah. And if you if they looked at their contractors, you knew that they actually had a holistic plan for health and safety. So when I first started out, I actually worked with unions and unions, for example, would not invest in any, they took their pension funds, obviously, and they wouldn't put those funds into any construction company that didn't use union labor. Do you think in post-COVID-19, you might see a a slew of investors that say, we're not going to actually invest in these kind of construction companies if they don't have inclusive health and safety plans for contractors?
3: Well, yeah. So I think especially um, going forward with these additional COVID-related requirements where There's a lot more restriction on movement on site, the number of people on site, um, shift staggering and things like that. Um, Investors will want to see that um, real estate developers are are able to take these into account and already have systems in place to take these additional requirements um, into account in their, their construction site operations. So if in the past they haven't, taken as close a look um, explicitly at contractors or maybe um, delegated that responsibility somehow in their their contracts. If they don't have that sort of additional layer of oversight, then maybe they will um, in the future be experiencing um, a a more, possibly more likely to experience um, more project delays, Um, additional liabilities um, if um, there are cases of COVID that come up that they miss or COVID that spreads through their construction site that may not be picked up if they're
0: not looking as closely as other companies. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Megan and Bentley and Morgan for discussing this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. I always enjoy hearing what you think about our episodes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever we get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone.